Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of the week, and we're very happy to have you with us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, and I will be trying to uh, do a little bit of ringmastering here on this circus with, no offense, Dr. Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. <laughs> None taking a Rex king of the Media Project. Get it, Rex? <laughs> We are here also with Judy Patrick, Vice President of the New York Press Association, former editor of the Daily Gazette. How are you doing, Judy? I am fine and always happy to be here. That's a good thing. We're, we're looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts today. And we have Jen Smith from the Berkshire Eagle, reporter and editor there. Jen, are you out and about in these perilous times? Oh, it is. You know, and it's a joy. It's about keeping distance. But, you know, I had a meeting with the parents in the, in a park yesterday, and we made it work because schools are reopening and they have a lot to say on that. Are you doing most of your reporting by phone or are you actually getting out and talking to people now? You know, it's really all about consensus. So I work with whatever people are comfortable with and, and what myself I am comfortable with. So I've had a variety since March of a plethora of Zoom meetings, of course, and then some phone interviews, some in-person distance interviews. So I've, I've been able to just keep it going and do what we all do as journalists. Yeah, just do what you have to do to get the story, I guess. And sometimes uh, that involves, as you say, depending upon what your sources are comfortable with, the first few people have gone back to the Times Union newsroom. We are mostly all doing remote, but a few dozen people are back in the building, I should say, and gradually we'll see how it goes to get back into things. And one of these days, we'll all be back in the WAMC studio doing this show. But in the meantime, we hope our listeners are tolerant of how we sound here. Alan, you sound fine. You've got your tie line. You sound great there. They might like it a little better, as a matter of fact. But in any case, it's a joy to be able to do it and to keep doing it. And, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And I think in all of our cases, it is. Well, it is. And, you know, that actually brings us to the topic of the national political conventions that we're in the midst of. We have seen how the parties have adapted and the media has actually just been sort of forced to go along with whatever was produced by the parties. Alan, why don't you kick us off on this and tell us how do you think this has been going? How did the Democratic Convention, for example, strike you as a media entity? Well, actually, I like it. You know, I've never been a big fan of the hoopla and the marching bands and the balloons up in the air and the rest of it. It's very substantive. 
But it's interesting that there are fewer people watching these. Why? Well, the people who are died in the world Democrats go to the Democratic Convention and vice versa for the Republicans. In the meantime, there's a whole bunch of people who like the hoopla, and they're not coming. So a lot is depending on what the reporters who describe what happens have said. So, for example, last night as we speak, Barack Obama gave a speech, and it was an excellent speech. But it was, in my mind, a somewhat intellectual approach to politics. He didn't scream. He called out the president, but he did it in a factual way. And so then what was interesting is watching what the reporters said about that speech the next day. So, for example, we heard that it was a very emotional speech. Now, I don't know about the rest of the people on the, on the panel, but I didn't see an awful lot of emotion. I saw a classic Obama talk in which he laid it all out, and he did it very effectively, and it's one of the reasons so many of us love him. But I think that the reporters, frankly, were looking for trouble. In other words, they wanted as much emotion. He really let the president have it. Well, he did, and he didn't. He didn't do it in the way that the president would have done it. So that's one of the insights I had about why reporters are so important when they're describing things which often come from the reporter's mind as opposed to what actually happened. I think there's a good question about the value of commentary of that sort that we tend to get a lot of on cable news when people actually are watching something directly and a question as to whether it is that commentary is of value. Jen, were you about to speak up there? Yeah, I think the challenge of covering anything like the DNC is that in its essence, it is, and especially as we see it broadcasted, is it's performative politics in a lot of ways. It's about how you look. You know, I think we are all looking at the just talk and talking about like things from a production value standpoint. You know, I've been covering local news, so I've been much of what I've been hearing about the convention has been through Twitter and, and what seems to start a trending hashtag and what doesn't. But it is, it's really about, you know, how did people look? How did they sound? And that's sort of different than what a journalist normally does, which is being there, asking questions and looking at and sorting facts. And so, you know, I guess what we can do is back check the statements that are, are made, but it is a different sort of animal to cover. It's interesting that at the time that cable news emerged as such a force in American politics, it was the same time frame as the presidency of Ronald Reagan, an actor. And so what you call, Jen, the performative aspect of politics really came into the fore. Judy and I were reporting long enough. Uh, you're a little younger than we are, Jen. So we remember before there was that much of a performance aspect in politics. Judy, what have you observed about these conventions and how politics are covered these days? Yeah, you know, I do remember when they actually used to be news events where there would be genuine news that would be produced, but there's no real news out of these. This is essentially a campaign commercial that all the networks are giving to the campaigns, first the Democrats, then the Republicans. And in fact, there have been moments when they're asking people to text to a certain number. It felt like an infomercial. You know, that rubbed me the wrong way. There are certain things I have been loving about it. I love listening to a political speech that's not interrupted by a lot of applause. 
laws. I have always hated that. I love the roll call of all the different states where you got to see the great variety of America. And I imagine that there are hundreds of local newspapers out there this week and will happen next week doing you know local reactions to their person that got on the national stage and got to say something at the Democratic National Convention. So there's that about it that I love. But this is just a show. It actually deserves more to be reviewed by the television critics and the uh, political strategists. A show. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, my favorite part of the show was during the roll call of the states when Rhode Island came on and touted fried calamari. (laughs) (laughs) Calamari was definitely trending. I was live tweeting from a Williamstown annual town meeting, and all of a sudden I kept seeing calamari come up in my field, so I had to look at all sorts of ridiculous in in a lot of ways. And, you know, Judy, I'm so glad you, you brought up the sort of ickiness, will I call it, of calling out campaign materials like go to this website, text to this number to donate. You know, I know Joe Biden did that even when he was first introducing us to Kamala Harris. And it sort of, for me, interrupted the flow of what I'm really there to listen and, and hear about. In this day and age, we, we know how to find them. We know how to make donations. That's what Google and other search engines are for. I don't need to be told that. Alan? Yeah, I suspect there may be another way of looking at that for whatever it's worth. Look, it's all about money. And these people are going to do anything they can to get money. Joe Biden, I'm sure, brought it up right from the beginning because he understood and was told, you have to do this if we're going to run a campaign. It's fascinating to me. We have, a Janice, you know, we have quite a little battle going on here. In the first district of Massachusetts, a congressional battle, our Richie Neal, who is, in my opinion, one of the best people in politics, has an opponent who is much younger and who is a self-styled progressive. But that progressive group is coming up with wall-to-wall advertising on the air. And that raises with me, of course, the question, where's all the money coming from? Who is supporting this thing? And uh, it does seem that there is an AOC connection and all the rest. So a lot of what we see is based on money, but we don't really understand why we're seeing it to the degree that we are. I'm sure some good reporters are going to get after your question, Alan, of where the money's coming from. That is what local reporters in the 1st District of Massachusetts ought to be looking at if that's a question that isn't yet answered. Just to address that briefly, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a new issue at all. It is adding a new layer to reporting in that it's not just the small donations or the local, whether it's a community level or local at a state level, but you know, national money, dark money, foreign money in some cases is coming into not only candidates, but into issues on ballots from all sorts of places. And it it has definitely added a new layer for us reporters to just track it down and see where is this coming from. And, you know, there's been a lot of good reporting out there. I mean, I just remember talking about a school choice bill that attracted millions of dollars in, in Massachusetts. And it made me scratch my head because as somebody who covers school committee stuff, you're lucky if you get 10 people in the room watching those meetings. So why is this, you know, relatively local issue getting all this attention and big money? Well, you know, it goes back to uh, what uh, Deep Throat told Bob Woodward, follow the money. And that advice from Watergate has become sort of the mantra for journalists. And during my years editing the Times Union, I always went to the front page whenever possible with, uh, that is, I put on the front page the stories about what money was being spent on lobbying in the state capitol and where the money was coming from for political campaigns, because I just think that it's so important for people to understand that if they want to understand what's behind the political decisions that are being made. So it, it is significant. But that is just 
part of our important task. You know, one of the other things that is important, not only showing where the money comes from and where it's going, but that is holding people's feet to the fire for truth-telling. As I was watching the convention, I was also following uh, the live feed from various places, including the New York Times, which was doing live fact-checking of what the speeches were saying. And I suspect the same thing is going to be going forward, given the president's propensity. History of lying. History of lying. (laughs) History of lying, yes. I suspect there will be a lot more activity on fact-checking in the uh, Republican convention than there was in the Democratic. But Uh, it is fascinating, Rex, mm -hmm. that the Times feels, appropriately so, I'm sure, that it's important to fact-check the Democrats because we know they're going to be fact-checking the lying Republican president big time. And so they want at least the appearance of some equity here is important. Absolutely. Does that mean we get to talk about Espidate's question to the president? Is that in the press court pool the other day? That's I fabulous. Espidate think... <laughs> apparently was waiting five years to ask this question. The HuffPost White House correspondent who asked the question, Mr. President, after three and a half years, do you regret all the lying you've done to the American people? <laughs> what do you think of that question? Well, I do think that some people took offense at that. I believe our regular panelist, Rosemary Armeo, I don't want to put words in her mouth, had issues with it. But I I agree with you. I think it was the best thing of the year, and I'm glad he said it. I mean, that's what reporters are supposed to do to get to the truth. And the truth is that the reporter was making a speech, (laughs) basically saying, look, you're a liar, but I have to phrase it in terms of a question, and he did. And Huffington Post, of course, which is where he came from, was known for their independent stance on this particular president. I'm with Rosemary. That was a stupid question. I mean, it's a question. Did he really expect the president to answer that question? No, he was just trying to make a speech. If he really wanted to know, the question should have been, why have you been lying or why have you told 30,000 lies saying, do you regret? Of course, it's a loaded question. It's, it's not a serious question. Asking the president questions at a presidential press conference, it's a unique opportunity and it was squandered that day. Oh, yeah, he made a big point and everybody, all the journalists thought it was great because everybody kind of wants to know, but nobody wants to know whether regrets it. He doesn't regret it. I mean, but why has he done it is the better question. You you definitely make a good point about the why or the how, but at the same time, it did generate a moment and sort of a a stark reminder that this is true, (laughs) that he was asking about a very true and enormous thing that encapsulates this presidency and that is very well documented. And, And so I think it did generate a thoughtful discussion in in my mind, or at least a thoughtful moment, for sure. Well, I agree. But the other thing is, I don't like the hypocrisy of some people in the press who think that that was a question which was really a speech when virtually every question has a meaning to it that the reporter sometimes wants to make. I don't think that this is unique. It's just a little bit more stark. I actually don't have much of a problem with the question. If 20,000 false or misleading claims have been documented, and that is, in fact, the case by the Washington Post, Glenn Kessler and team, and if, as Date points out, the lies turn out to be a central part of his presidency, why not find out what he thinks about it? Now, for our listeners, by the way, the answer is the president said, what? All the lying that who has done, that you have done, and then he went on and called on somebody else, just ignored the question, which is, of course, what you can always expect to happen. Presidents don't 
answer the questions they're asked. They give the answers that they want to give on the topics they want to talk about. This is, has always been the case. So I guess we shouldn't have expected a real answer there, but I don't know that it's such a terrible thing for a reporter who has never gotten called upon before to finally get a chance to ask a question. I'd like to know what the president thinks. I really would about the mm. criticism that that he lies so much. I just wonder if he is actually conscious of it and if it causes him any consternation. That would be an interesting thing to find out. I would also add, to that it was, at least for me as a journalist, what I appreciated about calling out someone in, in power in the moment is that it was taking a stand. It, it was saying, you know, we are watching. We haven't forgotten. And I think when Date was later able to talk about the question in, in other interviews, he said that, you know, we as reporters are being lied to. And um, we also have limited access to the White House more than ever. So he took his moment. And there is part of me that I was like, it's about damn time. <laughs> yeah. Something else that was big that came out here in the last week that is really worth talking about, and that is the Senate Intelligence Committee report, a bipartisan report under the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, which is, of course, led by Republicans, that concludes Donald Trump did communicate with Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. It basically goes beyond what the Mueller report did and talks about Russian interference in the 2016 election and Trump campaign's ties to it and goes beyond Mueller's findings. But the media coverage of it was, of course, so much less than what the Mueller report generated. Are we just at a different time? What do we have here? Alan, you're the political scientist here. What do you think about the response to this Senate Intelligence Committee report? Well, it was muted. Maybe it's because there are other things going on, maybe because we're getting closer to an election. But it was certainly muted, and it was an astounding report, and I'm going to tell you why. As you mentioned very perceptively, Rex, this is a Republican-led report. The chairman of the committee is a Republican, and everybody signed on to it. So from my perspective, and I did hear about it, of course, in the media. I'm not going to lie about that. But it certainly didn't reach the expectations and therefore the reaction to the Mueller report that we all saw. We saw Attorney General Barr come out and lie about what was in the report. And so there was a great deal going on. Nature pours a vacuum. We know that. And when there aren't that many other things going on, we get a big report like Mueller and we get a big send off from the press. But when there are other things going on, something's got to give. The okay. Senate clearly <laughs> released the report the week of the Democratic convention when they knew the media was going to be obsessed with the Democratic Convention, and it has been buried, and it deserves a lot more attention. But if you look at the media today, or any time this week or next, they're going to be focused on these conventions when, again, I'll make the point, there's not a lot of news coming out of these conventions, and, and this Senate report has striking new details about what went down during the run-up to the 2016 election. I think the Republicans knew they had to get it out there, but there's no better time than the week of the Democratic Convention to get this out. And again, I think the media is somewhat complicit, especially the broadcast media, because they're burying mm -hmm. it. The newspapers mm -hmm. are carrying some information, but it's not the lead. And again, the fact that Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination, not news. When you say the Republicans had to get it out there, Judy, I have an interesting thought about that. 
You may remember not that long ago, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, of course, said basically to his people when Trump was doing as badly as he is now, save yourselves. And I have a feeling that this report coming out now, because you say, well, they had to get it out there. I don't know that they had to get it out there. There are plenty of things they don't get out there. But I think that the reason it's out there is because they're going to need to point to it and say, look at what we did to chastise the president, or at least while we're standing up to him. So that's my view of it. Jen? I, I was looking at the CNN politics analysis column called The Point, and I, I loved the, the headline for this, which was, the Senate just dropped a massive Russia bombshell, and in parentheses, and most people missed it. And I think that hits the nail on the head, and it caught my attention. And the way he described, the column described it, was that, you know, this happened and most people shrugged. And, you know, I am also wondering, in addition to the media not covering it in the same way that the Mueller report was covered, and remember that took place very publicly over over years, but have we desensitized them because of that? Are people just fatigued or do they need more understanding of why this is such a critical issue to keep watching? And in that case, it's up to us as members of the media to make that case and put it out there for them. That's a very good point, I think. You are pointing to the limited power that the press has or that it feels that it has. We've gone beyond the Mueller report. It, it's almost, it's history. But it is our responsibility to try to point to something and stress why it is essential. This is meddling with our election, and people are now beyond that. We're on to the next scandal. You know, there's been so much of it. Now we're on to the Postal Service, of course, and the threat to our election that's posed by the Trump administration. And so that's what we're looking at. It's very hard to get people to pay attention to something once they've moved on beyond it, once it's no longer an issue at the forefront of people's minds. But that's part of our responsibility. But I think you've hit something that's really essential there. It's a, this is a big deal. Alan? Well, no, I was just going to say I agree with most of what everybody has said, but I do think it was a question of the reporters and the press having set up Mueller. In other words, they said, Mueller, 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 here comes Mueller, Mueller may do this, Mueller may do that. That did not happen here. This is sort of a surprise to a lot of people. And so the advance was not given by the very reporters, which Jen so perceptively said ought to be doing this. They weren't in this case, and somebody was asleep at the switch. I will say, that with respect to the Postal Service, it seems to me that this has come out in no small part because of media attention, that the threat to the U.S. mail, I believe that the media have done the job of bringing this forward, and actually Congress came only after this was pointed out by the news media. And this is a significant matter that if one of the reasons that it is such a dynamic topic is because everybody gets the mail. Every local newspaper, every local radio station is served by and local us. post offices. And, and all of us. Absolutely. So, um, Not like there isn't there, anything to cover these days. <laughs> there are many things to cover these days. That's absolutely true. And actually, even Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame talks about the Postal Service ought to be viewed as top of mind by journalists, ought to be seen as a national emergency. But I do think that the media has done a pretty good job of, of being on top of that one and putting this into people's minds. Yes, but um, did they tie? But, Rex, the question here is, did the media appropriately tie Trump 
to why he is messing with the post office, which is to win a, a re-election. That I don't know. Well, we certainly tried to at the Times Union. Now, let me just say that we've written editorials about it long before it got to be a big deal here. And I don't at this point have much of a complaint about the media handling of it. Maybe maybe we'll see. Uh, you guys never do. You know, you, with you guys, it's all the media can't be faulted. But I do think that they can <laughs> on a fairly regular basis. So there you go. You know, can I chime in here? I think that the media has done a poor job in some respects. The U.S. Post Office has been something the Trump has never liked, and they do need a bailout because they are in financial distress. But uh, relying on anecdotal information about somebody's mail was late, their prescription was late, what the media has only started to do in recent days is really to talk to people who actually track the mail. And because there are private entities that do this to see how late the mail actually has been, and it has gotten worse. But why has it gotten it worse? Is part of it's due to the pandemic. Part of it's due to the fact that some of these mail distribution centers have had large numbers of their employees be out because they've tested positive. I mean, I think that kind of reporting is only happening now. Early on, there's too much focus on anecdotes. And I can give you an anecdote where I sent a package to my grandson and it came two days earlier than it should have. So anecdotes are not a good way to report this. On that great point, a really good point for journalists everywhere. We're going to have to take it to the off-microphone conversation because we're out of time. Judy Patrick, that was at the end. Jen Smith before her and Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. We thank you for joining us in the Media Project. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and we hope to see you next week once again on the Media Project. Such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the world. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Jen Smith is the community engagement editor and an education reporter at the Berkshire Eagle. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ding-ling, ding-ling, ling ling Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. Oh, newspapermen are such interesting people. 
It's wonderful to represent the show. Now, publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.